Well, the devil is a deceiver. And regardless of how much Hollywood and popular culture wants to dress up like him and mock Christianity and Christ, we need to be aware of his tactics. And here in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, John has been helping us to see the enemy and his ways. And the reason for that, as we've said, is so that we can be better equipped so that we can endure through whatever God's sovereign will brings to pass and then conquer through the blood of the Lamb. But the text that we have for tonight is one that many Christians even are deceived in or they're confused in at least. Not to say that they aren't saved, but by understanding it in in a wrong way, they leave themselves in a position of weakness and then likely to be deceived and unequipped for the spiritual battle that is taking place all the time, the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Often, in prophetic teaching, the beast of Revelation is assumed to be the Antichrist, a, a future enemy of God, not an enemy that we have to deal with now, but a future enemy of God. And interestingly enough, the term Antichrist is not actually even said in the book of Revelation. It only appears five times in the Bible. Uh, All of them are in 1 John and then 2 John. But applying Antichrist language to the apocalypse beasts is appropriate. It may be appropriate as long as we clearly see the reality that is described in John's epistles. And so John writes to first century Christians, and John affirms, This is 1 John 2.18. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So because the last hour is identifiable by the appearance of the Antichrist, the activities of, quote, many Antichrists in John's day marks the time period in which first. Christians, or first century Christians lived in, and which we still live in today as the last hour. When the Bible speaks of the last hour, it's not speaking about some future event. It's speaking about the time that the original audience was in when they received the letter, and as well, the time that we're in also. We've talked about that before. And so how can we recognize Antichrist? John's epistles trace his or their profile uh, this way. Uh, The Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. For in doing so, he denies the Father and the Son, 1 John 2.22. And then if someone was to like tamper with the work of Christ, his saving efforts, his comforts, that, that is then a person who denies that Jesus is the Christ as well. And of course, every spirit or person that refuses to confess that Jesus is the Christ and, and comes that he and that he didn't come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist, first John four three and second John seven. So think atheists or think anybody who's a part of a different religion. And so although John's readers have heard that a specific personal expression of Satan's rebellion against Jesus Christ is to come at some future point, John wants them to also recognize that the satanic deceptions that surround them presently and that always surround the church in this age, that is to see that this is the last hour that we're in and already in the first century, and therefore that we need to be on guard. Uh, Paul's discussion of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 has the same perspective, though the problem he addresses in Thessalonica seems to be opposite of the one that's answered through uh, John and his letters. If the recipients 
of John's letters. Remember, he writes three letters and he also writes Revelation. But if the recipients of John's letter were unaware of, or they were, they were hyperly aware of the issue of eschatology and the, and the end time, the Thessalonians were the opposite. I, just, I said the other way around, actually. The people that John was writing to, they were unaware of the problem. They didn't realize that the Antichrist was already among them, and, and many were already among them. In Thessalonica, the problem was reversed. They were believing that Jesus had already come again and that the, the end was already here. They were like eschatologically supercharged, and they were troubled by rumors of the day of the Lord having already happened, leaving them behind. And so, in order to calm this last day's hysteria, which is something that some groups today need, Paul flatly asserts that the day of the Lord will not come before the appearance of the man of lawlessness, who will be then destroyed by the splendor of Jesus' presence and the breath of his mouth when he returns in final victory, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, 3, and 8. We'll look at that later. And this lawless one, though, he will be the personal epitome of Satan's attempts to usurp God's authority and worship, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And yet those evil trends will reach like a climatic expression when the man in the man of lawlessness and they're operative even now, though, though they're under restraint. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only now he who restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Again, we'll look at that later, too. The New Testament portrait of the present and future, though, it's consistent. Wherever we turn... The, the impression that the New Testament gives of the, the present time when the Bible was being written, when these words were inspired and the apostles were writing them down and the other biblical authors were writing them down, compared to the time that we're living in now, it's a consistent image that we are given there. Um, the dragon's violent hostility against Christ and his church is a constant that characterizes the whole era between Christ's resurrection and his return. And so are we to think then that it's the Antichrist that we are being that we are reading about here in Revelation 13? That's the question. That's what many do today with this text in Revelation 13, although they assume it's a future Antichrist, not one that has to be dealed, dealt with now. But as we've seen, John's first century hearers and us, his 21st century readers, we are both living in the last hour. We are in the last hour, we've said that before a number of times, uh, from a prophetic calendar perspective, there's only one major thing left to happen, and that is the coming of Christ again, the parousia, uh, the return of Christ. We are in that period of time that Revelation has described a number of different ways, calling it three and a half years, 1,260 days, a 42-month period of time, or a time, a time, and, a, and times and a half. And so, as we read this second about this second beast here in Revelation 13, let's try to think about what the Bible says elsewhere about who is this Antichrist and Antichrist and this man of lawlessness, and we'll try to bring it all together towards the end to have an idea of what we should think about the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist in light of what Revelation says. So let's read our text and then we'll pray. With the reading of God's word, begin at verse 11. 
in Revelation 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make images for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath into the image of the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we pray for understanding this evening. We ask that you would help us to be clear about this text God, we don't want to be unclear with any part of your word, but especially as we have been learning and understanding how important these passages are to make sense of the world that we live in, we ask that you would bring clarity to our hearts and to our minds and that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, I think it would be beneficial to ask some questions about this beast. Uh, this beast that John saw rising out of the earth. Remember, the first beast came out of the sea, but now the second beast is coming out of the earth. And so I'm, I'm tempting to, or I'm going to have to take this part in two, two sections like we did with the first beast, just because it would be too long to try to deal with everything tonight for our time frame. Tonight we're thinking of who this beast is, and then next week we'll think more in depth about the acts or the actions of this second beast. So the first question is, when will this beast who, saw, who John saw rising out of the earth appear? Uh, we don't need to devote too much time to this question, I think, because a good deal of time was devoted last week to answering it in the, or two weeks ago in the first sermon on the first beast, the one who came up from the sea. If you remember, that beast, John saw coming and rising up out of the sea, He was, in fact, active in the world before John originally penned the book of Revelation. That same beast is active in the world now and will be active in the world until the Lord returns. In other words, the first beast, if you remember from the last two weeks, it symbolizes the powers and the governments that have been, that are, and will be present in the world until the time of the end when Jesus comes again. And it's not just some future Figure. If you remember, John is writing in about 90 AD, and he's specifically seeing an example in this apocalyptic imagery of Rome and Nero, and Nero lived in around 60 AD, in the late 60s. And the same then is also true of the second beast. He operates all throughout this period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. The second beast as well operates during the period of the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And note, the second beast, we read, 
essentially works for the first beast. Verse 12 says that the second beast exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This is Revelation 13, 12. The powers symbolized by the first beast are present in the world during the whole church age. Again, symbolized by that time frame of 42 months or 1,260 days. And so too are the powers symbolized by the second beast. These two, the, the powers symbolized by the first beast and the second beast, they work together in their assault against God's people who are living in the world. And so when will this beast whom John saw rising out of the earth appear? Well, this beast from the earth was present and active in John's day, has been active in the world, and will be until the end of time. He's not a future enemy, in other words. He's a present one. Just like he was an enemy in John's day, he'll be, he's an enemy in our day. He's going to be an enemy in every Christian's day until Christ finally and, and fully deals with them. And remember, we know that's true because of the way the first beast was described related to that imagery that we saw from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Secondly, who does this beast symbolize? <clears throat> it would be helpful to remember that, this, that the first beast, the beast from the sea, symbolizes the political powers that end up persecuting the church. And again, that's clear from the obvious connection that exists between the first beast of Revelation 13 and the four beasts that are described in Daniel chapter 7. Remember, that beast of Revelation 13 is a combination of the four beasts from Daniel chapter 7. And those four beasts symbolize successive kingdoms that would rise and fall and persecute the people of God along the way. The first beast of Revelation 13, being a, a hybrid of all four described in Daniel 7, signifies, therefore, that it's not just one political kingdom that we're thinking about here, but we're thinking about all the kingdoms that persecute through political power in this age. This beast, remember, was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, Revelation 13, 7. The original readers of Revelation would have thought of Rome and Nero and the persecutions endured by Christians there. You and I might think of North Korea or Islamic State or the Islamic, Islamic States or China and our brothers and, and sisters who suffer under those oppressive powers or in Canada, and the arrest of pastors recently, and even here in the United States, with COVID restrictions that weren't consistent, but targeted churches especially. Those types of things, friends, aren't neutral acts. There's no neutrality even. There's no such thing as neutrality. They're, those things are just a more subtle way of the beast operating rather than in comparison to like the ways that it does in an, in an Islamic state. And with this in mind, it's important to recognize that the second beast is closely connected to the, first, to the first beast. Not only are they contemporaries, active in the world at the same time, but they are also colleagues. They work together, and they're working towards the same goal, which is you know, the suffering of the church and the deception of the world. We are told in verse 12 that the beast from the earth exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence. Uh, the Greek word there refers to a position either in front of or like before an entity. But the word might also mean 
to do something on behalf of something else or someone else, to go in front of them and to act on their behalf. And so notice how the translators of the ESV have rendered the phrase in its presence. But if, you're, if you have an ESV, you might notice there's a footnote on that specific word that takes you down to the bottom of the page. In my Bible, it's a, a number four. And there it says that a possible translation for that word, instead of in its presence, is on its behalf. In its presence, on its behalf. In other words, these beasts are a team of sorts. The second beast is a kind of a minister who serves the first beast, carrying out its wishes. And since the first beast symbolizes political culture and powers that persecute, the second beast ends up symbolizing the religious and economic powers that serve as agents who also carry out the persecution and of the church and deception of the ungodly. These two powers should not be hard for us to, to identify in the world. It really is quite simple to understand the way in which these two powers, though different from one another, do indeed correspond to one another and work together. I want for you to imagine a situation in which there is obvious organized and systematic persecution of Christ's people taking place within a given society. So I'm not talking here about like isolated, random, and sporadic instances of persecution where an individual or small group decides to treat Christians badly for a time. But I'm thinking of those instances in which persecution is very deliberately being organized by those who have real political power. The kind of persecution experienced by uh, the Jews, and many Christians, too, under Nazi Germany. Think of the kind of persecution experienced by Christians under Nero and Domitian in Rome. Remember, John is writing in the period of Domitian's rule where he wanted to be called Lord and God, and if Christians didn't submit to him and call him Lord and God, they would be put to death or you know, caused to suffer. And think of the kind of persecution perhaps endured by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Azariah, Azariah, I'm forgetting on their original Jewish names right now, but I always, I always tell myself I need to remember those ones. But anyways, think about their suffering under Nebuchadnezzar. These are all examples of obvious, organized persecution motivated by those with real power. Now think of this. When persecution flares up within a society, it's not simply Hitler or Nero or Nebuchadnezzar that carries out the acts of the persecution, but their ministers go in front of them to do their bidding and to work on their behalf. These are the powers symbolized by the second beast. These are those political and religious and cultural and economic powers that serve as an agents in the carrying out of the persecution of the church and the deception of the ungodly, because the first beast has the power that it does. And so the second beast then has this power as well in light of the first beast. False religions, wicked laws, they operate in a society, in a culture, because of the power granted to the first beast from the dragon, who again, the dragon is Satan. That was clear, we saw. And so do you see then how the first beast from the sea and the second beast from the land do relate to one another? Because the first beast has been granted authority and power, he works that power through channels provided in the second beast, which consider politics, 
religion, and culture. And so thirdly, we ask, where does this beast have authority? What's the scope of its persecuting and deceiving power? Again, look at verse 12. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also in verse 14, we're told that this beast deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so again, we aren't to think of this as some future and specific power, but there is a general, comprehensive power being explained here by this beast. The authority, the authority of this beast can be observed throughout the earth, all throughout the age that we're living in. There is a spiritual battle going on everywhere. It's happening all the time, uh, no matter the apparent goodness or evilness that we might observe of a culture. So it's past, present, and future until Christ returns and destroys all opposition unto him, which, for those who trust and love him, is a great joy. That day is a great joy. We are excited about the second coming of Christ. It's a time in which we know that all evil will be finally and fully done away with, and the evil which we even brought into this world, we are trusting that it was atoned for completely in Christ. And so we have peace with God. We're reconciled with God. But for those who don't know Christ, as we learned before, that day will be a time of terror for them. Uh, they'll want the mountains to fall, and they'll, they, Revelation 6 talks about them hiding in caves. And they'll be wishing the mountains would fall upon them so that they would avoid this punishment from Christ. And what that means, if it's not obvious already, is that this second beast isn't speaking simply of a single and future Antichrist or the man of lawlessness that I mentioned earlier, apart from what is already taking place here and now. There's a similarity between them a religious and cultural influence and political power. But what we're seeing here in Revelation 13 with the second beast is that the activity of many that we could call Antichrist all throughout this period of time, and it, it exists all throughout this period of time and all over the world in varying degrees. It's not the same here as it is somewhere else. And, you know, 400 years ago, it wasn't the same somewhere else as it was here. It changes according to God's plan as he builds his kingdom and he saves those who are, whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It's not, none, nothing is random or accidental. It's all happening under the authority of the first beast who was empowered by the dragon and they have authority over those whose names were not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, we don't have time to get into the acts or the actions of the second beast tonight. We have to save that for next week. But with the time that we do have tonight, I thought it would be good to consider who is this Antichrist or this man of lawlessness that I mentioned earlier in light of what Revelation 13 describes as a general spirit of Antichrist. For some, it's not a future religious political power at all. For some, it's someone who already existed during or before when John wrote this book. It could be Nero, for example. For others, Nero was a type, but those folks who often see the first beast as, as the Antichrist as well. For others, it's a future individual that has similarities with what we read here in Revelation 13. 
But what makes the most sense to me is what the Reformers and the Puritans came to see in light of Scripture and the testimony of the actions of the second beast in their own time period. So the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, along with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration, all three of those confessional documents in their chapters on the church, which again, a confession is simply a summary of the Bible, an organized summary of what the Bible teaches as, as how people are understanding what it teaches. And it's not the word itself. It's a description of the word. It's like a sermon in that regard, similar. And so what they all said, though, was that the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist. They're all very similar. They're all nearly identical, although some modern revisions choose to leave this portion out about the Pope of Rome. I was actually surprised to see that on the Westminster Confession, on the Ligonier ministry page, actually. Um, but let me read the statement from the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 26. This is paragraph 4. It's the same chapter and paragraph in the Savoy Declaration, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the older translation, rendition of the Westminster. It's chapter 25, and it's, the, and it's paragraph 5. But this is what it says. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, and the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, we should know, first off, that this paragraph in the confession doesn't come out of nowhere. The confession is organized in a specific manner to summarize what the Bible teaches, and all the doctrines build off of each other and seeking to give an accurate understanding of what the Bible says. So again, this is you know, chapter 26, chapter 25 in Westminster, and it's, so there's a lot of doctrine that has built up before this, but it's stated in light of a positive statement about the church. More on that in a moment. But this comment about the Pope of Rome, who they say is that Antichrist, is based off of 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 9, which is a very interesting and really a startling passage. I referenced it earlier, but let's look at it in whole now. We'll just kind of read through it and have some comments about it as we go through it. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. <coughs> Beginning at verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So I mentioned earlier how the Thessalonians were like a supercharged eschatological society, thinking already that the second coming had took place. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, not yet. It hasn't taken place yet. It's not going to come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And let's read a bigger chunk, verse 4 through 9. 4 says, this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his, his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, or that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lost one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. So, there we have some actions of this man of lawlessness. And note, it's in step with what we read in Revelation 13, in light of both beasts even. He is being worshipped. But note, the, the specificity here, he says that he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God. So let me ask you now, what is the temple of God as explained in the New Testament? What is the temple? We've went over this a few times in Revelation already as well. What is the temple of God? It's the church. It's the people, right? It It applies it individually in 1 Corinthians, like Adam was saying, that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But then also in Ephesians, he makes us all into a living temple that the Lord lives in. We read that verse last week, I believe. So now we ask ourselves, are Christians, the audience that the Apostle Paul is writing to here, are they going to end some other religion as having the true God? No, right? These are Christians that he's writing to. They're not. Certainly not. And so just like the mockery of the dragon, the two beasts, this man of lawlessness is posing as an angel of light. We would expect, him to, we would expect to see him then in some vein of Christianity, some, some mockery of the, the true faith, just like the dragon and the two beasts seek to mock the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this being, this man of lawlessness that Paul is describing to the church of Thessalonica is also coming in a deceptive manner. He makes, and hence, the reason for the choosing of the Pope in the confessional documents. And he makes himself to be God. Here the uninformed may think this eliminates the Pope as the best option, but it's not that clear, actually. Because we know, obviously, the Pope isn't walking around saying, hey, I'm God. That's not what he's saying. But it's one of the greatest heresies of the Roman Catholic Church is their exaltation of a man to the place of Christ. The, the Pope or the Bishop of Rome takes the title of the Vicar of Christ. You may have heard of that before. But what that means is that he is acting as Christ's representative, ruling as the supreme head of the church. He's also called the Pontifus Maximus, meaning the supreme or great high priest, which is making a mockery out of Leviticus 21.10. But the Bible says that Jesus is our great high priest, the Son of God, Hebrews 4.14. So invoking the authority of Peter, the Pope claims to speak with infallibility on matters of faith or life, placing his own words on the level of Christ's words. So it's deceptive, right? And isn't that the mark of Satan? The ploy of the dragon and the beast. He says that he's the vicar of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's role to represent Christ now that Christ is off the earth. It's not 
the popes. And by doing so, by claiming that title, though it may not be clear, he's asserting that he is God. He's, that he's asserting that he's sitting in the temple of God. That's what Christians hundreds of years ago understood. And note, though the apostle makes a way to see a future man of lawlessness, after all, he's telling the Thessalonians that, he, that one hasn't come yet, he does say in the section that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out the way. So it's already at work, but it's being restrained. This, this working of the lawlessness one is already at work in the time of Thessalonica, uh, when, it was, when that letter was being written, but it's restrained. It's, it's being veiled some. Remember, the dragon and the beast are operative in this whole age as God is working out his plan of redemptive history and the salvation of those he chose in Christ. It's being restrained, but one day, close to the second coming, that restraint will stop and Christ will kill him with the breath of his mouth. But it's already at work. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, it was already at work. When John wrote the Apocalypse, it was already at work. Over the last 2,000 years, has been at work. And very early on in the church history, we see the doctrine of the papacy start to emerge and grow and morph into into what it is today, until it was really finalized in those Roman Catholic documents that were put forth at the Council of Trent during the time of the Reformation. The Westminster Divines, along with their Baptist and Congregationalist contemporaries, believed and make a good case for their beliefs in their frequent writings on the subject, that the office of the papacy, not just one individual pope, not just because there's been many popes since the, since the first one was claimed to be, have that office. Uh, they trace their history all the way back to Peter. We disagree with them on some sort of apostolic succession, like, like they say, but that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And so it's the office of the papacy, not just one individual pope, that is fulfilling these prophecies, asserting its claim to rule the universal church, which is the New Testament people or temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. So not a single pope is the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, although there will be one final one at some day, according to the wisdom of God, whenever it is the one who is living, I suppose we could say, at the time of Christ's second coming. But the office of the Pope, this one who claims to be the vicar of God, which is only rightly said about Christ and of the Holy Spirit, he is operating along the lines of what we see in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 13. Roman Catholicism, then, is a serious error, friends. That's why there is no peace with Rome. That's why when the Reformation happened in 15, when it began, we would say, in 1517, it hasn't been reconciled yet because there is still this issue. So the great historic confessions of old offer to us a solemn warning. Christ alone is the head of the church. We can't ever forget that. That's how this second beast is going to deceive people, by having someone else claim to be the head of the church that others will follow. He who dares to usurp Christ is the enemy of Christ. The confession of the true church has always been and will always be that Jesus is Lord. It was the conviction that led early Christians to choose death rather than to worship the emperor of Rome. And the same conviction 
strengthens the church in every age. The blessed hope of the church is the return of her king, and her prayer always is, is come, Lord Jesus. Christ alone is the savior of the church. Our hope, friends, is in his intercession and his alone. And we need to be on guard, on guard because Satan is a deceiver. He seeks to come and deceive, not as an outright demon. That's obvious. We do shockingly see that, I guess, sometime in our days if we pay attention to Hollywood and the things that happen in popular culture. But like I said on Sunday, it's the most, he's the most dangerous when he comes and, and supposedly representing the true God and the true Christ. Who does that more clearly than the Pope, the office of the Pope? We need to be discerning. And so that's why the confessional documents list the Pope as the Antichrist, that man of lawlessness. So next week we'll come back to this chapter in Revelation 13, Lord willing, and we'll consider the actions or the acts of the second beast. But let's pray, and if you have any questions, we can talk about that. Father in heaven, we do appreciate your protection that you offer to us in this world and for giving to us your word so that we might be aware of what's happening. We know, Lord, that so many go about blind. Uh, not aware of the spiritual battle that is always at place. But we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us and make us aware of it, that we would see all things rightly through your word, and that we would look to you for safety and for peace and for wisdom. God, please give us all wisdom so that we might honor you and glorify you. You are worthy of worship always and adoration. May your will be done, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so any questions or... Last week, you guys had some good comments. Try to be clear. The last hour is referring to this time from Christ's ascension to his second coming, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the last hour, it's, there's a number of ways in which the Bible speaks about like what sometimes we call the church age or this present evil age, <laughs> the last hour being one of it. It's called the last hour because when we think about all that God set up to happen and to be accomplished with the ushering in of Christ all the way from the proto-evangelium in the garden, the first promise of the gospel, all the way to the arrival of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God and his ascension. All prophecy has been fulfilled except really primarily for that second coming of Christ. So it's the last hour. There's not much left for God's plan of redemption to happen, hence the last hour. What do you think? Pope, Antichrist? <laughs> That's not a popular view anymore. I heard it's a It's not a popular view anymore. Um, you know, if we were watching like those Left Behind movies or those books, you know, they talk about a political power that'll raise up from, you know, maybe Europe or something. I'm guessing those, the people who think that Catholics are in fact Christians definitely would not. not say that for Yeah. Sure. Yeah, And we remember, you know, that there are some Roman Catholics who we think are saved. Um, we see people, you know, leave the Roman Catholic Church, but the Pope, though. But then they're really Protestant, yeah. Because once they reject their system of salvation, which is not grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, then you've left the Roman Catholic system. Even if for some reason they may remain in that building for some time. Sure.
Guys, it's weird. Yeah, because I talked to like some Catholic people that yeah, that they believe everything like that, but for some reason they're still going to Catholic churches. It's hard to change, you know, those bonds, those family ties, and but it's it's necessary. They need you know people to encourage them to do what's right to fear the Lord. I remember one time we were doing some evangelism out in front of Planned Parenthood, and we talked to a Roman Catholic lady, and she had all these good answers, and she was saying, "No, I'm just trusting in Christ for salvation, not anything I do." But then when I we asked, we pressed her a little bit, and we were like, "So you're saved by grace alone?" And she was like, oh, wait, alone? No, not alone. Also, the things that I do. And you know, they, again, so it's a different gospel at that point. But our concern really for tonight is the elevation of the Pope and how he might be used of the beasts uh, to, to be this person who deceives many and leads many astray. And the Roman Catholic Church is the largest apostate church on the planet, has been for a long time. Plus, even the um, other churches that have that same, like the Mormon church, they all kind of tie together. So there's like this um, really under surface of it that it's like it started in Vatican, but their tentacles kind of go into a lot of these other churches. Kind of gave me chills a little bit. Like, we again, we. We need to be discerning. I tried to like want to say that on Sunday as well as I could. Discernment is so important, especially as we see this our culture be more dark and more evil and more celebratory of the things of Satan. I'm not that old, but I could tell there's a clear difference even in the last twenty years. Yeah. All right, you guys. So next Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll hopefully consider. Uh, the actions of this second beast as laid out in Revelation 13.